I'm very disappointed in this uh, wine from Sandbanks. It's still decent, but it's like my least favorite Sandbanks wine I've ever had. And I bought it only because I was like, this one officially has a vegan sticker. I know all the other ones are, but <laughs> why not do the one with the sticker? It's okay. It's a Riesling, it's too sweet. I should have known that. I don't like Rieslings, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> What's the one that you got? I have a blueberry wine. I Ooh. thought, you know, why not diversify the crop? <laughs> that's very fun. <laughs> Damn it, Kyla, I don't know anything about blueberry farming. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to stump you, and I guess I did. <laughs> I want to keep all of this. Let's introduce the podcast now. Perfect. <laughs> I think it's your turn to introduce. So do you want to do it? Oh, no, I'm too drunk to remember what our introduction is. Okay, that's all right. I've got it. Welcome to Pullback, the podcast where we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, yeah. <laughs> so this episode, we are doing another installation of our alcohol series, and uh, this time we're focusing on wine, which is yeah. very exciting. <laughs> I turned mine into a smoothie while I was waiting for you, because I'm sitting in my laundry Ooh. room and it's really hot in here because I was just doing laundry. <laughs> Kyla always has to record in her laundry room because there's just constant construction. <laughs> <laughs> I live next to like two active construction sites. Oh my goodness. <laughs> How did you turn it into a smoothie? Did you just add ice or? I blended it with frozen blueberries and raspberries and Ooh. it's pretty good. I'm pretty happy about it, but I forgot that I didn't eat anything at all today. So I'm already far more <laughs> cool. inebriated than I intended. <laughs> but I was like, oh no, I have to go to the post office. And I like ran over there when we were supposed to already be recording. And uh, by the time I got back, it was like, okay, better just chug a whole glass of wine. This is not <laughs> chugging wine, by the way. I don't recommend that at all. <laughs> I have to, I feel like we should, we should say for all of the new listeners that just came in for like the climate change episode and stayed around or the inequality episode and stayed around, we are not drunk or high in half the episodes. <laughs> <laughs> we do a wide range of topics. It's, it's just happened that these are sort of near each other. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we had a lot of compliments on our cannabis episode and maybe we should consider being inebriated for everyone going forward. <laughs> My mom would be very upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> My mom would be proud. <laughs> My mom already doesn't like that we swear in the podcast. Uh, so. Yeah, my cousin has a two-year-old, and she's like, I wish I could listen, but you guys swear too much. And I was like, he's going to fucking learn these words anyways. <laughs> At least we're using them in context. <laughs> it's important to know how to swear well, I think. Yeah, like it's if you're just doing it to be crude, then that's not good. But if you're doing it because the world is a fucked up and awful place, then sure. Like, yeah. Seafood. <laughs> <laughs> what a fun episode that was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. So what do you have for me about wine? I'm just gonna I you know what? It's too it, I'm too far now. I have to keep drinking. Okay. Well, while you're still somewhat cogent, <laughs> why don't we talk about the challenges that we did? Um, so you picked a blueberry wine. I did. I wanted to diversify my crop. And also, when I was at the farmer's market the other week trying to get fish, I saw like a local fruit wine stand. And they were like, yeah, our farm is in Abbotsford, which is really close to me. And I was like, oh, it's a local wine. I was too afraid to go back to the farmer's market because of COVID. 
But I did find <laughs> this wine from that brand, um, Man Farms, M-A-A-N. I found it in my local liquor store, which is where I went for our beer episode. I got some gin, which is not a beer, but that episode just turned into beer. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like a small, like, uh, it's a small, it's it's a small liquor store and the the staff there are, are awesome. I love them. And they hooked me up with this delicious blueberry wine. So. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> Do, oh, actually, for this challenge, I really wanted to make a wine. That was what I was looking into mm. doing. I looked into this like really a lot because I was like, I haven't done a good challenge in a while. I want to do something involved. But the only wine kits I could find to buy were on Amazon. And I was like, well, that defeats the purpose. So yeah, it'd be easier if stores were open right now because you'd be able to get a wine kit or something from there. Well, and there's a whole bunch of wine, like make your own wine stores here around BC because BC is a huge wine spot. When COVID is over, I actually have a friend who I was talking to about this who was like, oh my God, I've made so much wine of my own by going to these places. We'll do it together. So I have a, a future thing, but for this one, my challenge is pretty lazy. Well, and actually, um, I found this out during the research. Uh, one of the things that British Columbia is dealing with is that a fair amount of their labor on grape farms apparently comes from backpackers that come to visit BC. And so they're trying to figure out what to do now that the borders shut down. One of the things that British Columbia is considering is uh, trying to replace the backpacker labor with like students that live domestically. So oh, maybe cool. you could do an on the sly pullback challenge by working on becoming online. a student. <laughs> well, I don't think you have to be a student. I think they just want domestic labor. But oh, I was going to say, I was like, that's an involved challenge. <laughs> I think they're just like, who needs summer jobs right now? And they're trying to target Millions that Millions of people. Yeah, everybody. <laughs> everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, what about you? What was your challenge? Uh, mine was a little bit lazy, uh, if I'm being really honest. In the, <laughs> in the vegetarianism episode, I kind of already did a wine challenge, and I sort of just repeated it. In hindsight, I should have maybe gone for like an organic wine or a fair trade wine, but I just went for another vegan wine. Uh, again, Sandbanks, the same winery I got it from last time. I'm so boring. <laughs> but this time it's a white wine instead of a red wine, so... Mmm. And you like, you prefer red wine, so really I it sure is a do. challenge for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a Riesling and I don't like it very much, but that's okay. Uh, Sandbanks is generally a very good winery. I'm usually very happy with it. I just... Rieslings aren't my cup of tea. But yeah, uh, one thing that I did was also look into Sandbanks a little bit. And um, I had already known that they were like a, an Ontario local-ish uh, winery. They're in Prince Edward County. And one thing that I found out from their website is that they do claim not to use herbicides and pesticides, um, which is something we'll talk about a little bit in the episode. But they don't do organic certification or anything like that. So I'm not sure to what extent that is true. Although sometimes companies can adhere to some standards, but they may not want to meet all of them. So they might not get certification or they might not want to pay for auditors. There are all kinds of reasons that maybe they truly don't use pesticides, but they don't want to be organic certified. The one thing is that they were bought by another wine company in February. So I don't know how that's going to change their practices. You know, I always get a little leery when there's a big buyout. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I didn't really look into my farm at all, except I was like, they're at a farmer's market and they're local and it's a different crop than normal. So two <laughs> thumbs up from me. <laughs> but I didn't think about pesticides. 
Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, um, pesticides going to figure prominently into this episode. So I'll maybe just give an outline of what the way I thought about it. So I remember from when we did the beer episode that when I was doing research, human rights in the wine industry came up a fair bit. So I figured we'd focus on that. And so going to talk about that. Uh, and then after that, the environment and wine, we've got a couple of different things. I mentioned pesticides. It's kind of a big topic in winemaking, but there are also questions around climate change and also do you buy boxed wine or bottled wine? I don't want to spend very much time on animal welfare, but we'll, we'll briefly cover it. And yeah, I think that'll do it for the episode. Okay, cool. I would say that this might actually be our shortest episode, but I'm too drunk for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll find out. Um, remember when we thought Zero Waste was going to be short and then it wasn't at all? <laughs> yeah, it was like two hours I had to edit down. What happened there? <laughs> okay, so I'll just start with some sort of general information about the wine industry. Uh, one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting is, I don't know if you remember from the alcohol episode, but the beer market is sort of like, it's dominated by about five behemoth multinational companies, and then there are a whole bunch of like little guys. That does not seem to be the case in wine. So the wine market is actually pretty like spread out. Like the biggest wine producer in the world, which is E&J Gallo, um, it only has about 3% of global production. So there are lots and lots of different wine producers out there. And they also come from lots and lots of different countries, which makes it a little bit more complicated to, to look at the ethics of the industry because you're trying, you have to sort of reckon with a whole bunch of different players from a whole bunch of different places. Oh, I've got a, a question for you. Uh, do you think you could guess who the top wine exporter is in the world? Oh, is it Spain? No, although they're in the top three, so good guess. Is it Italy? No, they're second. <laughs> <laughs> is it the United States? Uh, no, they're like sixth or something. Uh, I'll just tell you, it's France. <laughs> oh, duh. Oh, my God. <laughs> you did really well with the other two, though. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Of course, it's France. <laughs> Yeah, so France um, is responsible for about 30% of global exports of wine. And then Italy is about 20%, so it's the next closest. And then Spain has about 9%. Then after that, there's Australia and Chile, and they both have about 5% of, the global, of global exports. So the list after that is a whole bunch of different countries that have like 2 or 3% or 1%. Um, so I didn't want to put them down, but essentially there are lots of countries that export, but really sort of France, Italy, Spain are the big ones. Whereas like, if you look at Canada, we're a pretty small market and actually apparently all Canadian wine is produced by, uh, small wineries as they're classified. So they're wineries that sell less than 200,000 liters of wine. So like the Canadian wine industry is really growing, but it's mostly just because Canadians are starting to drink more Canadian wine. It's not like we really have an industry that we export. I know that we're famous for ice wine, and I just want to go on the record right now as saying that it's disgusting and I hate it, but a lot of other people <laughs> love it, so you should still try it. 
Um, <laughs> love my Canadian products, but personally, I find ice wine revolting. Okay, can you tell me, of Canadian exports, um, is ice wine, in your view, better or worse than Tim Hortons? <sighs> I don't know. Probably, I mean, Tim Hortons is owned by an American company now, so I guess ice wine is better because it's That's still true. a Canadian thing. <laughs> I meant just like in terms of the taste, but yeah, sure, on moral grounds, I'm much better with ice wine. Look, this is controversial, but I prefer Krispy Kreme to Tim Hortons, so... Oh, I don't think that's controversial. They don't even bake their own donuts anymore. <laughs> Fuck Tim Hortons. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it makes me uh, uh, not pay a patriot anymore, but Krispy Kreme is so fucking good. Oh my god, <laughs> my mouth is watering just thinking about it. I haven't had one in ages. <laughs> I don't know if there's any in Vancouver, I haven't looked. <laughs> not vegan though <laughs> no <laughs> oh man so yeah uh canada's a pretty small player the big players the european countries you know about also australia is a pretty big exporter which is like a thing australia and canada have been in like these trade wars because canada has like a really bonkers system around its alcohol production if you're not from here it makes no sense and if you are from here it makes no sense what happens well, it's like you can't really export wine from province to province, and there's a lot of protectionism that goes into that. So arguably, there's less free trade interprovincially in terms of alcohol than there is internationally. Do you know why? Uh, <laughs> no, I don't know why, um, other than that it's just a system that's existed, and they tried to change it a few years ago, and they couldn't get consensus. Wow, that's so Why bizarre. anything happens in this country. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> True. <laughs> We're basically 13 separate countries. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, it becomes a problem because the way the trade system works, if there's a violation, you can take a country can take another country to the World Trade Organization and be like, hey, you violated this rule. But because these rules... A lot of the times it's like provinces that put them in place. So like if you're going to sell in like the Ontario market, you have to have like a certain quantity like of Ontario grown grapes or whatever. And because that's a provincial rule, Australia can go to the World Trade Organization and be like, hey, that's a violation. And the World Trade Organization can be like, yeah, Canada, that's not allowed. And Canada will just be like, well, but... We don't have the power to change it because Ontario's got its own thing. Wow. And so it becomes a really big problem. That is super weird. Yeah. It really has nothing to do with the ethics of wine, but it is, it is kind of an interesting issue, I think. So anyway, uh, let's talk about human rights, though. <laughs> <laughs> so if people have um, looked into human rights and wine, a country that comes up a fair bit is South Africa. Um, I hadn't heard of this issue until I was researching for our alcohol episode at New Year's, but there's a really big issue with South African wineries violating the labor protections that South Africa has. And a lot of it has to do with sort of like apartheid legacies. Um, because a lot of the winery owners are white and a lot of the vineyard workers are black. Sure. So, Yeah. yeah. If you're looking for more information on this, there are two really good sources you can go to. One is a Human Rights Watch report called Ripe with Abuse from uh, 2011. And that's where most of my research is coming from for here. And another one is a documentary that's called Bitter Grapes. And it sort of looked at um, issues with pay and exposure to toxic chemicals and a whole bunch of things like that. 
But essentially, there there are a whole bunch of problems. First of all, that there is a minimum wage in South Africa, and that workers on uh, vineyards oftentimes aren't getting paid the minimum wage. And when they bring it up to the work, the um, the vineyards, they'll oftentimes just say, "Well, tough," and there's no enforcement really. So um, there's not a lot that can be done from a worker's perspective. Some of them have tried to unionize, which is also something that's protected in South African law. But again, unless you've got a state that's willing to actually step in and like do something when your employer starts to fire you or otherwise discriminate against you for your decision to unionize, then like that right doesn't really have any effect. So it's a really big problem. And actually at its extreme, they've found that some vineyards in South Africa we're actually paying workers in alcohol rather than wages. What? Pretty fucked. <laughs> what? I, I, that is so much to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> They're paying their workers in alcohol? That's awful for so many reasons. <laughs> it's not great. The other thing is that, so there are lots of different housing situations that people who work on South African vineyards might have, but one of the the situations is um, people having on-vineyard housing. And in those cases, a lot of times it's really substandard. So Human Rights Watch, for example, documented a case where a family was living in a converted pig stall, and it had no electricity and no water, and it didn't even provide like full shelter from the elements. So... It wasn't really a shelter in any way that we would think about it. And apparently when they moved in there, the vineyard owner said that it was temporary, but they'd been living there for a decade when Human Rights Watch was talking to them. So obviously not so temporary. And I guess there's just not a lot of other options, so they have no choice but to stay? Yeah, I guess so. Um, I think the situations do vary a lot because sometimes it'll be permanent work and sometimes people are coming in seasonally, so... I'm not sure what the needs are that are driving those different kinds of employment. But yeah, I would imagine these are people in precarious situations. And it really sucks when you link housing and uh, and employment, because then if somebody gets fired, they lose not only their source of income, but also their house. It encourages them to maybe stay at shitty work and live in a shitty house because it's better than no work and no house. Yeah. It also gives employers a lot of power to do like shitty exploitative things. And we know that when that's happened historically, that that's been the case. Yeah. So working conditions are also just generally pretty shit on South African vineyards. And not all of them. There are some that that do a good job, but there are a lot that don't. Is there a way to tell which is which? There's a couple ways. One is that there's an ethical seal that the South African Wine Industry Ethical Trade Association launched. So if you find that seal on your wine, you have some indication that some standards were followed. Another option is to make sure that you're buying only fair trade certified wine if you're buying it from South Africa. So that's another way that you can tell. Now, I wasn't able to find a lot on the working conditions on on vineyards in other countries where you would have sort of like substandard labor protections. Um, But I think it's probably fair to say that even if South Africa is the most stark example, uh, that there are similar problems probably occurring in the wine industry elsewhere in the world, too. 
And we know that agricultural work is among the most exploited industries where workers are the least safe and they're not very well paid and they are disproportionately subject to like hunger. So that's a a thing that you should consider when you're thinking about trying to buy wine. So yeah, as I mentioned, fair trade wine is one solution to that. If you are going to buy wine from somewhere where you're not certain about the labor standards. Although it sounds like wine comes from literally everywhere, so there's no reason not to buy local, right? Yeah, although, I mean, if we go back to the sugar episode, uh, Lex was talking about like this idea that sometimes ethical standards or buying local can be a way not to buy from like racialized people. And that I, I think that's a tricky moral question, right? Because if you're, if you're buying only, if you're buying in a nationalistic way, then in a certain sense, you are, um, you are placing barriers that are unfair, right? And I don't know, you're making it more difficult for people to participate in industry from elsewhere. But on the other hand, if there's no way to know if what you're buying is ethical to begin with, then you're not doing anyone any favors, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think we also, uh, I'll talk in a little bit about how actually labor in wealthy countries isn't necessarily better on vineyards. Um, probably oh, great. It, 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 pro- it probably is a lot better than um, in South Africa's case, but the conditions aren't necessarily great. So we'll talk about that. But yeah, if you are looking to buy from South Africa, Lebanon, or other places uh, where there have been documented human rights abuses, uh, you can look for fair trade options. I just I looked on Canada's fair trade website and there are at least four wine brands that you can get with the fair trade seal. Uh, two of them are South African brands, one's Argentinian. And one said it was Quebecois, which I was a little bit confused about, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, if you live in the UK, there's a there seems to be a wider selection of uh, fair trade wine available, and I think that's just because the fair trade label seems to have more uptake there, but uh, that's a thing you can look for. But as I mentioned, the labor conditions aren't necessarily excellent because you're purchasing from a wealthier country that does have labor laws, because in a lot of cases, the workers on vineyards are um, primarily temporary migrant labor, right? So in Canada, uh, wineries rely on the seasonal seasonal agricultural workers to do a lot of the work on their grape farms. Um, and that's something that I think happens to a fair extent in other wealthy countries. Um, I It was kind of hard for me to find data on that. And actually even finding numbers on it in Canada, like I I tried for about half an hour and I, I gave up. <laughs> so we know, we know there are enough that the like grape growers association or whatever is worried about COVID because their workers are coming from outside the country. So it's a significant number of laborers. So that means that the the story of labor protections on Canadian wineries and probably in a lot of other countries as well is in a really real sense the story of how we treat these seasonal migrant workers that come in. And on that metric and possibly on no other metric you might want to check out wine from Saskatchewan. <laughs> <laughs> what? Why? <laughs> um yeah, I I've never had wine from Saskatchewan. I don't know how much wine is grown there. I think not a lot. 
but it is the province that's done the best job of protecting human rights of temporary foreign foreign workers. Um, well, they could only possibly have like three wineries, right? <laughs> like it's cold there literally year round. <laughs> yeah, um, and I I don't know. So this was a report that was done by the Canadian Council for Refugees on the rights of temporary foreign workers. So it wasn't even specific to agriculture. It was for all kinds of temporary foreign workers. So I think it's a relevant thing to talk about because if you're looking at who's working on wineries, most of them are seasonal agricultural workers who are sort of like a class of um, temporary foreign worker. And Saskatchewan, according to the Canadian Council for Refugees, is doing the best job of protecting temporary foreign workers. They got... Wow. Yeah, I, I thought it was really good. Good job, Saskatchewan. Yeah, props to, to Saskatchewan crushing it on this metric. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> you love to see it. Uh, one of the things I really liked about that is um, Saskatchewan allows access to healthcare for temporary foreign workers without premiums and without waiting period, which is... Wow. Not super common, but should be. No, speaking as somebody who has had to use healthcare in other countries, that's an awesome thing. Yeah. So in terms of who's doing the worst, according to the scorecard that the Canadian Council for Refugees put together. Please don't be BC. Please don't be BC. <laughs> it wasn't be BC. BC was solidly yes. like in the middle somewhere. Uh, <laughs> the worst was actually um, the federal government. Right. <laughs> Great. So it's everybody. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Great news. Um, and also the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. So, what? Really? Yeah. I'm surprised. Uh, me too. But they, yeah, they both fared pretty similarly bad. They mostly got C and D ratings. Um, and they both had one B and that was their best grade. So what sort of stuff does it grade? Uh, it grades things like... Um, how protective is the legislation? Uh, how good is the enforcement of the legislation? How good is the province or the federal government at promoting like public awareness or like making sure that temporary foreign workers actually know what their rights are? Uh, access to healthcare was one of the metrics, things like that. So yeah, they for whatever reasons, I, I think they the best grade that Newfoundland got, which I thought was interesting, is actually access to permanent residence. So like to what extent is being a temporary foreign worker a pathway to get to stay here longer? And they got a B on that one, whereas like that seemed to me to be a metric where usually the provinces were lagging behind. Like it was they tended to get worse scores on that than on other things. So I was surprised that that there was that disconnect. I don't know what's going on there, but I guess that's good. <laughs> But yeah, it's not great that the federal government is the worst at it. <laughs> it's not ideal. Yeah. It's not what you want. I mean, the the obvious problem with just saying buy wine from Saskatchewan is that you there's probably not that much selection if there are if there are wineries in Saskatchewan, there aren't probably that many. So Well, and like you were just saying, there's no like provincial trade for wine. So even if I wanted to buy wine from Saskatchewan, where would I even find it? Well, you can. There are just trade barriers. Um, which is why like if you go to a like if you go to a, a liquor store in BC, you can sometimes find like beer or wine from Ontario, but it's like you're not gonna find it as much as you find BC wine because there are protections. Anyway, you probably can't find Saskatchewan wine. Maybe you can. Maybe <laughs> look for it. I'll look for it. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they're not a major wine-producing province. The four provinces that produce the most wine are Ontario, British Columbia, Quebec, and Nova Scotia, and it's in that order. So 
Of those, British Columbia was doing the best, although the other three were all doing badly. So it was not like a success so much as (laughs) a low bar. (laughs) Yeah. And with BC, there's like a set of complicated rules that create barriers for accessing healthcare, which uh, sucks. Yeah, I'm a little bit surprised, but also not really, I guess. I think it's like um, with the healthcare access, my sense is what the general policies are has a like makes a big difference. Like there's a waiting period in Ontario to access healthcare. And I suspect that gets wrapped into temporary foreign workers as well. Yeah, same. When I moved to BC, I needed to wait three months before I was covered. And it was like, but I'm a Canadian citizen. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think, I mean, I'm not sure whether that those are the rules in Alberta as no, well. No, they're not. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I'm not sure whether it's just because I was born there and you don't have to do a waiting period. <laughs> I don't I don't think that there is one. I don't know. This is completely off topic now. <laughs> no, Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, I think it's like a lot of the times it's just like those, the legacies of old rules, though, and how they get extended. But anyway, uh, provinces could definitely be putting more effort into doing a better job. Yeah, so as I mentioned, COVID has sort of put a spotlight on the place of wine workers. So one thing that's that's kind of good is that farm owners are now receiving $1,500 per worker to cover the costs required to... Um, to fulfill the two-week quarantine, which is not, I don't think, as good as giving that directly to the workers, but it does mean that you're less likely to see exploitation around, like, what, because they are required to come in and do a two-week quarantine, at least you know that there's that $1,500 that can go either towards um, providing actual wages or at least to covering, like, the costs of sheltering people during the, uh, the quarantine. So that's helpful. And yeah, as I mentioned in British Columbia, they're trying to figure out what to do because there are no backpackers coming in. And so who's going to harvest all the wine in June? Uh, so the hope is to train the workforce domestically. And actually, I guess we'll we'll know by the time this episode comes out, probably. Oh, it yeah. Will be June. yeah. I don't know. I'll, I'll try and pay attention to that. Although I'm pretty drunk. I don't know if I'll remember any of this. Oh, but I'll remember when I'm editing. Yeah, I'll try and look into this. (laughs) Record drunk, edit sober, Kyla. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's move on to the environment and wine then. So one of the big topics in the environment and wine is the use of pesticides on vineyards. Basically, grapes are disease and pest prone crops. So conventional grape farming uses huge quantities of pesticides to increase yield, basically. So one stat that I found, which I thought was pretty staggering, is that vineyards represent 3% of agricultural land in France, but they represent 20% of pesticides and 80% of fungicide use. So, Whoa, why? What's the difference between grapes and every other crop? Well, it's just that they're very disease-prone and pest-prone, so... Wow. I think the, the idea is that like, there are other ways to farm it, but that you have to... Either you have to pay more attention to the crop or that you have to use more machinery or there are various other things. I went down a rabbit hole while I was researching for this where I was just reading a bunch of French vineyard owners like complaining about various things to do with pesticides. Oh, yeah. And you speak French, so you could read like actual articles from France. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
They all want a subsidy. That's what I found out. They actually don't care about the pesticide rules. They just want the government to pay for uh, their decreased yield as a result, which seems fine to me. So <laughs> I solved the problem. France, give them subsidies. It's fine. <laughs> Say that again in French so that uh, the, Fr- the French listeners will understand it. I'm not drunk enough to speak French. <laughs> uh, so... Part of the problem around pesticides, obviously, we've talked before about how pesticides have adverse environmental consequences when they like get into the water supply and things like that. They can um, create algal blooms and, you know, do other shitty things to the environment. But some of the pesticides that are used specifically on uh, on wine, um, including glyphosate, have been identified as toxic or otherwise linked to adverse health consequences. And that's been a subject of huge debate in France. I couldn't find as much on it in other places, but I think that's just because of the... These are my speculations, but I think there are at least two factors behind that. One is that because France is such a big wine-producing country, that it just has like an importance in the zeitgeist that it might not elsewhere. And the second thing is that a lot of French vineyards, from my own anecdotal experience, experience. They tend to be packed more closely with um, communities. So you certainly can, like if you go to an Ontario winery, um, it's in a community, but it's like a lot more spread out. So if you're spraying pesticides, it's not going to necessarily affect the school next door, you know, whereas in France it does. Yeah. Hashtag Canada is big. (laughs) Yeah. It's big, it's spread out. um, And we also don't have as many wineries. So but yeah, it's been it's been kind of an interesting debate there. There's um, a woman named uh, Valérie Murat, and she she basically launched a lawsuit in 2015 on behalf of her father, who was uh, like a, a grape grower. Um, his name was uh, James Bernard Murat, uh, and he died from cancer. And his death was actually it's fairly unique for these kinds of situations. He actually had his death officially recognized as being linked to his profession because. Um, he had been spraying three different pesticides that all used this banned cancer-causing substance. So usually there's no evidence, but like there's strong suspicion. In this case, there was actual evidence linking his death. Wow. Yeah. So she um, got an inquiry launched, um, basically trying to get his death recognized as manslaughter. I wasn't able to recognize, or I wasn't able to um, determine where that case had gone, so I'm not sure it's been con- concluded yet. But it sort of made big news at the time and has pushed forward this um, anti-glyco or anti-glypho um, movement that um, has taken steam in France. There was another situation that happened in 2014 where there were 23 school children hospitalized in the Bordeaux region after a nearby vineyard sprayed a fungicide so whoa what were they hospitalized for was it like a lung thing or I don't remember they had like symptoms I don't think any of them died but you know yeah if you're making school children sick that makes news (laughs) yeah people don't like that (laughs) (laughs) fuck yeah it's become this um like politically live issue in France because there are all these communities that are like, oh, you're spraying fungicide and it's getting in my pool and my kids are swimming there and it's a whole thing. Um, And so as a result, you've seen um, a lot more movement in the government trying to ban certain pesticides and fungicides. And also one of the things they're doing now is trying to set up no spray zones so that 
if there's a vineyard too close to a community, it can't spray in certain areas. So there is some attention to this issue in France, but I think it demonstrates more broadly that pesticides are a really big concern if you're thinking about not only the environment and wine production, but also the people that are working on the vineyards, are they being exposed to toxic chemicals that may either kill them or sterilize them or cause other kinds of adverse health consequences. But it comes up into this sort of interesting trade-off. And when I was telling you, I was, I was reading about these debates with French farmers, uh, one of the problems is that some wine growers compensate for pesticide use with mechanization. And so that actually increases the carbon footprint, right? If you're using more machines to grow wine because you're not using pesticides, now you're contributing more to climate change, but you're polluting the environment less. So which is preferable? It's kind of a tricky, kind of tricky to say, you know? Yeah. So what do you do about it? Uh, there are a few different certifications you can look for. The first one is that you can look for organic certification for wine. That's probably the most well-known of the options I'm going to talk to you about. And we've got, we're, we're slated to do an entire episode on organics soon, and it's fairly complicated. So I'm not going to go into the different labels, but basically something that's certified organic, it typically isn't genetically modified, doesn't use pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides. That's, that's sort of the core of what or organics labels mean. And then there are other standards that sometimes get lumped into it as well. Uh, I, it's an important note, though, that organic production doesn't actually guarantee that an operation is environmentally friendly in a holistic sense. Even if you're not using pesticides, you might use water really irresponsibly, or you might uh, use carbon really inefficiently. So organic certification tells you part of the story about the environment, but not the whole one. Uh, but it is becoming more popular because people have a lot of environmental anxiety. And actually, when I went in to buy my my cop-out of a challenge sandbags <laughs> wine, uh, I saw that the the... Ontario Liquor uh, Board is it they're featuring organic wines. They now have an entire wall of organic products because presumably they think that there's a market for that. So I thought that was interesting. There's also something that I had never heard of before called biodynamic certification, which seems to kind of just be at the risk of alienating people that support this. It kind of just seems to me that it's like kooky organics. <laughs> I'll explain it a little bit less glibly, but um, so you can have a biodynamic farm that can be certified. Um, and biodynamic farming is super similar to organics. So you'll see a lot of the same standards, but they tend to be a little bit stricter and they tend to also have requirements for like 10% set aside for biodiversity. So that can actually be better in a certain sense. But it also emphasizes, and this is not necessary to all biodynamic certifications, but the sort of ideology behind biodynamic agriculture has a lot of spiritual and mystical elements. Like <laughs> they use the lunar calendar. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So um, the, the guy that created this, um, his name was Rudolf Steiner, and uh Wikipedia describes him as a philosopher, social reformer, architect, 
esotericist, and a claimed clairvoyant. Okay, so not a scientist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, there are some pseudoscience elements, but at the base, it's kind of just like organics plus some kooky stuff. So as far as I could tell, none of the pseudoscientific elements of biodynamic farming are actually harmful. So I'm not, I don't have any opposition to it. And I actually think the biodiversity requirement's kind of a cool rule. But but so wait, um I'm so drunk. So I, just, I <laughs> so is this a certification that some wines have? This this like astrology sort of <laughs> certification where it's like our wine was in Jupiter ascending when it was harvested and so <laughs> it's better for your liver? <laughs> so as far as I understand it the astrology stuff is not like actually a standard of the certification. (laughs) Uh, It's just kind of like suggested. It's like a bonus. Okay. Yeah. And a lot of the farmers that go for biodynamic instead of organic, it's because they believe all this stuff. It's not because they're just too lazy to get organic certified because it's like an actual real thing or? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think biodynamic certification may actually be harder to get. Although I I don't know that much about the specific standards and with all of these kinds of things, a lot of it is in the details. So. so the only thing that we know that they're guilty of is maybe a little bit of misleading advertising, but otherwise they're pretty harmless. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> if listeners know more about this than I do, because I was basically just on a little Google spree for a bit, uh, please let us know because I <laughs> am super curious about this whole thing. <laughs> so another certification that you might want to look at if you are from the West Coast of uh, the United States, or also if you're in British Columbia. Hey, that's me. Yeah, it's you. (laughs) Uh, You can look for Salmon Safe Vineyard Certification, which I think is nice because we just did a seafood episode. So continuity. Yeah, and I love salmon. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's it's kind of nice. As far as I could tell, it's basically an add-on. So usually um, these vineyards already have organic or a biodynamic certification. And then in addition to that, they can be certified as salmon safe. And that basically means that the grapes were farmed according to standards that reduce vineyard runoff, that protect water quality, and that enhance biodiversity. So that's dope. Yeah, I think that's dope. Yeah. So in addition to not using pesticides, they're also making sure that um, that the salmon are safe. Yeah, and everything that goes around salmon, because salmon is a huge part of the environment around here lots of other things are affected by their where they where they live you know safe drinking water yeah exactly so yeah if you like salmon think about that or even if you don't you like ecosystems generally (laughs) (laughs) i don't think there are that many vineyards that have certification for that one though so if you're unless you're looking for a wine that's from oregon washington or bc you're not going to find it. And even if you are looking in one of those three places, I don't know how many vineyards are available. But it's definitely worth Googling if you're if you're into that. Climate change, we should talk about it. It's important. Um, and it's been an increasing point of discussion amongst people that discuss wine techniques and things like that, that organic does not equal low carbon. And that's a source of concern that for people that want to be ec- ecologically responsible when they're producing when they're consuming or producing wine right it's a huge um it's a huge cleavage i think in the environmental movement generally like how to what extent are we going to be laser focused on this thing that imminently is going to kill us 
versus all these other things that um, could help us fight the fight on climate change, but in the short run, there might be trade-offs. Um, I don't know. I think I tend more towards the holistic environmental approach, uh, but I can see people coming down on both sides there. Yeah, I mean, when we were on our road trip in Newfoundland, we, you and I had a bit of a, a disagreement on this, where I was more of the environmental anarchy side, and you were more of the people need jobs too, Kyla, sort of side. So, you know, wherever you fall on this, as long as we can all agree that the environment being destroyed is a bad thing, I mean. <laughs> yeah, well, but also it's like, um, I mean, well, I'll save this, actually. We'll talk about it in boxed wine section. <laughs> But so let's say you um, climate change is a huge concern for you. And so organics isn't enough. Um, in that case, you do have some options still. That's kind of nice. You can look for wine that has a couple of different certifications. So the first one is called the carbon zero certification. So carbon zero, it's basically a carbon neutrality standard that it, it requires you, the producer, to measure their emissions according to their standards. Um, and then they require them to also purchase offsets. We'll have to do an episode on carbon offsets, though, because there's a huge debate on whether they're basically just like indulgences. Like, do they actually do anything or do they just allow people with money to feel better about themselves? And the evidence that I've seen seems to point in that direction. So... <sighs> a question like are carbon offsets if they're not perfect are they still better than nothing i don't know is it good that they're these companies are measuring their emissions um even if maybe that doesn't drive behavior changes i don't know <laughs> you get to decide though and if you decide yes you should get a wine with carbon zero certification another option is wine that is uh, leed leadership in energy and environmental design certified so LEED is basically, it's a certification that's operated by the Canada Green Building Council. And it's usually for buildings and things like that, but there are some wineries that have gotten certification. So it looks at things like water usage, energy efficiency, and sustainable site development. There's at least one vineyard that has it. Something uh, The vineyard's called Stratus Vineyards, and it was the first Canadian winery to abstain the standard. It got that in 2005. So some options for you. All right, boxed versus bottled. Do you have a do you have a, a stake in this debate? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I know that when I was younger, I preferred boxed wine because it was cheaper and it gets you drunk faster. Uh, <laughs> anyone who spent any time in Australia will know Goon is the young person's wine of choice. It comes in a box, <laughs> and you're very likely to wake up in a ditch the next morning after drinking a whole bunch of it. It's very popular. Australians love it. I had it once and I was like, maybe I'm too old for this. I was 24. So it's like a 19 year old sort of drink. So sure. because of my experience, like that was the first time I ever had boxed wine. And ever since then, I've kind of associated it with like cheap frat parties. But I don't mean to like, I don't want to, you know, I've seen friends of mine drinking out of boxes and I don't want to make them feel like I'm silently judging them. Uh, wine in general gives me heartburn. So I don't have a horse in this race. <laughs> I'm a gin drinker usually. <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe they'll make boxed gin. <laughs> <gasps> I should look for that. But if I were to guess, I would think that boxed wine would be better for the environment because it's easier to compost the boxes. I don't know. And you can buy in bigger bulk, so you get a whole box instead of like a, a little bottle, you know? 
Yeah, so those are a couple of the dimensions of the debate. The first thing to sort of to talk about is that there are two kinds of boxes that are talked about when we talk about boxed wine. So the one that I immediately thought of is actually called bag in box wine. And it's the one where you get like a cardboard box. It's got a little spout. There's a bag inside. It dispenses a large quantity of wine. <laughs> that is the one I am familiar with. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like a cheap wine keg kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one kind. The other kind is uh, wine that comes in Tetra packs. Wine that's basically like juice boxes, I guess. So those are both available. I'll just quickly note that the most environmentally friendly way to consume wine is to actually just have it filled somewhere. Oh, yeah, of course. The places where I can go in town to like make my own wine, I bet they do that too. Yeah, so you could do that. Or, I mean, we talked about this with beer. You can go to a brewery and get like a growler refilled. I don't know to what extent there are options for that with wine, in part because you could have a brewery in a city. It's a lot harder to do that with wine because you have to have like the grapes growing. So it might be harder to find that method with wine, but that's definitely a manner of drinking wine that's popular in France um, and it seems the best. So if it could be done elsewhere, that'd be great. Beyond that, it gets a little trickier. So there are some advantages to bag in box wine. As you pointed out, it is lighter than glass and can carry a higher volume. So on the carbon footprint, you might be better off, especially if you have to, if you're getting wine from really far away, that there might be an advantage there. And if you're getting a cardboard box, both the glass and the cardboard are recyclable. So those kind of balance out, but the plastic bag and the spout in the box wine probably aren't. So you're probably using single-use plastics for that, which is where my big hesitation comes in. I'm not sure to if you included the like production of the plastic into a carbon calculus, I couldn't find any that did that. You might still come out ahead if you're just using a climate change metric. But if you're thinking about plastic as like this thing that sticks around in the environment for 500 years and that most of the times doesn't get recycled or can't be recycled, I don't know. I have huge hesitations about it for that reason. So that's true. You and I both hate plastic, <laughs> maybe more than the average person, because we've done the plastic free July, or I have anyways, plastic free July challenge. I'm about to, and it's going to suck. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be doing that um, really soon here, actually. And I'm not looking forward to revisiting that challenge. <laughs> it was really disheartening the last time. Yeah, it's going to be so hard. But I mean, for that reason, I would. My suggestion between bag and box wine and glass would be get glass, but buy local. So get wine that doesn't have to be transported that far and recycle your glass. But it is, I think, a little bit more even for bag and box wine. I think with Tetra Packs, it's, for me, the decision is less close. So Tetra Packs also have that carbon saving advantage um, because it's lighter, so you can transport more carbon efficiently. But the drawback is that Tetra Packs are made from a fusion of polyethylene, paper, and aluminum. So like, in theory, if you buy a Tetra Pack, it has the recyclable symbol on it. But in practice, how much of that is getting recycled? Not that much. The global recycling rate for Tetra Packs is 26%. So 75% of it's not getting recycled at all. 
And the other thing is that because it's a composite, the recycling that's happening is actually downcycling. So you're getting a less valuable material out of it. Whereas when you're recycling glass, it can pretty much be made back into glass again. So the recycling is more valuable if you're using glass. But to what extent do you weigh that against the carbon uh, cost? So what I'm hearing is Tetra Packs are the worst. (laughs) And if you're buying local... Uh, glass it's is still better. disposable vapes are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who have not listened to our cannabis episode, we'll just go ahead and tell you the spoiler now. Don't use disposable vapes. <laughs> just don't. Yeah. But if you're going to buy wine from abroad, then maybe get it in the box. Um, but uh, that disposable plastic, I mean, we're not a huge fan of that either way. So I don't know if it's worth it to get it in the bottle I don't know. I think I think I'd say just get it in a bottle all the time. It's easier, surely. <laughs> yeah, and like try to get local most of the time because you're going to decrease the transport costs. And there's no reason not to. Everybody makes wine apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like let's say you want to buy like a special bottle of wine from France or something and that's going to be like a really you know, special thing for you that you're not doing all the time. Okay, recognize that that increases your carbon footprint a little bit. But I mean, as we talked about in the episode with Robbie, uh, like the the average person is consuming so little in terms of the the total carbon output. Like, if you indulge occasionally, it's not going to be the thing that tips us into the climate catastrophe. Yeah, we can thank billionaires for that. Yes, and also like if you're if you want to focus on a personal behavior change. The obvious thing to do is just to reduce your meat consumption. So I would say eat less meat and then you can still have your wine that's in a glass bottle. And that's nice. You don't have to destroy the oceans. That was something that we learned um, in our beer episode was that not all wine is vegan as well, um, which probably we should mention here uh, because they use a... Uh, when they filter the wine, they sometimes use an agent that comes from an animal product. So um, what I did when I bought my wine, this blueberry stuff from Man Farms, is I emailed them and I asked them, like, hey, is your wine vegan? And they were like, yeah, it is. Thanks for checking. So Yeah, um, actually, I think it was the vegetarianism episode that we mentioned it because um, that was what my challenge was for that one. But, oh, yeah. Yeah. But either way, totally correct. Um Many wines aren't vegan because the fining agent that's used to clarify it um, is made of one of four different... So there there are basically four different fining agents that are made from animal products. The first one is casein, which is a milk protein. So if you're vegetarian but not vegan, that's fine. Same with the second one, which is albumin, so it's egg whites. And then gelatin or isinglass are both... Um, they're, well... Gelatin is animal protein and isinglass is from fish bladders. So in those cases, neither vegetarian nor vegans could eat it. You can get fining agents that are vegan. So two of the common ones are bentonite clay and activated charcoal. Many organic wines are not vegan, but some of them are. And I think that's changing a lot as people, the people that want organic are also the people that want to be vegan more and more. So um, it should get easier. But if you're looking for a tool uh, to find vegan wine, you can go to barnivore.com and they've got a whole bunch of different alcohols that you can search, see if they're vegan friendly or not. So a really easy tool to use. 
Or because most wineries are local small businesses, it's really easy to just email them and ask. My winery got back to me within two hours. That's true, yeah. Although some of the bigger ones can be a little bit more disingenuous with their claims, Mm. or sometimes if you're Googling it and not directly contacting them, the information can be out of date. One of the big, uh, I think I mentioned this in the vegetarianism episode, but there is this article on like, here are 10 vegan wines, and like three or four of them were not vegan anymore by the time that I looked at the article. So Barnivore is great. They update things all the time. I would recommend going to there. Or yeah, you could totally just call the winery or go there. That'd be a cool way to to see what goes on once we're allowed to go places again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's all I have for for, for, uh, wine. Nice. That was really good. I, you know what? I still feel pretty good about drinking wine. I mean, other than the heartburn it gives me, but <laughs> if you guys have anything you want to add to the conversation, you can get us on Twitter at Pullback Podcast. Uh, we're pretty active on there right now. We love getting feedback on all of this stuff. So let us know. And uh, otherwise, we'll catch you next time when we do our palm oil <laughs> episode. It's going to be the hardest challenge yet, maybe. <laughs> well, and then we're doing Plastic Free July right after that, which will be even harder. So, great. <laughs> we stuck some fun ones in for ourselves, okay? But it's going to get harder. <laughs> catch you then, guys. Okay, well, in Newfoundland's defense, they probably failed because nobody can understand what a Newfoundlander is saying anyway. So <laughs> any foreign workers coming in would be like, what are you What are you trying to explain to me? And Newfies <laughs> would just repeat it in their silly accent and nobody understands anybody.